everybody, and welcome to another episode of my show. I'm Father Roderick, podcasting on a very cold first day of winter. It is as if winter has really awoken, because outside there is a layer of frost covering everything. It's beautiful, but also <laughs> freezing. This episode of my show is brought to you thanks to my patrons over at patreon.com slash fatheroderick. If you want to join that community and support my work and also become part of that environment that we've created for the patrons, which is a Discord server. We've got some extra podcasts that are coming your way if you uh, uh, support me. Then, by all means, take a look at, fa- at uh, fatheroderick.com on... Uh, no, <laughs> actually, take a look at patreon.com slash Father Roderick, thanks. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. This larger world is also always part of the recording itself. I'm streaming now. Now that I'm in my new rectory and I've got a studio set up and I just told um, the people in the chat before we started recording this show that I bought a new lens for my Canon M50 and it is really looking good. It's a a Sigma um, 16mm f1.4 lens, if that says anything. (laughs) You know, but it means it's a very sensitive lens and it creates a nice blurry background. It's it's really, really good. Um, and, and it's always nice to get some feedback before I start recording the show from usually an international group of people. And now we've got people from all over the world. Some, a few of them are from here from Europe, um, but others are from the United States. And then if I say United States, it's like West Coast plus East Coast. That's the advantage of recording this later in the day that almost everyone is awake. And it's always fun to get that feeling that you're not just talking into the void, even though I'm looking into the lens of a camera. But being able to chat while I'm recording this show uh, helps me to also make it more personal. It feels like I'm not alone in this room, even though I am. <laughs> anyway, what's going on in my world? What's going on in your world? Probably, at least part of it, the same thing. And that is this new variant of the uh, of the coronavirus, the Omicron variant, is making huge headway in our societies and is causing a lot of trouble, again, because it's spreading so much faster than the previous Delta variant. Um, And so, obviously, this is causing a lot of concern uh, when it comes to just the numbers. We still, we don't know yet if it's going to be more harmful or kind of the same effects as Delta. But because it's spreading so much faster and because still a certain part of of the, at least here in my country, a part of the population has not been vaccinated... Um, there are these 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 concentrated areas where a lot of people get infected, and then ultimately that will, of course, reach the elderly, and well, you get uh, <laughs> all havoc ensues. So uh, we're currently in a in a strict lockdown here in the Netherlands, which means everything is closed. Only the 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 like the vital stores are open, like supermarkets. The um, uh, if you want to get medicine and that sort of stuff, but everything else, there's no entertainment whatsoever other than just walking outside. Uh, museums are closed. Movie theaters are closed. Oh. <laughs> I was looking so forward to 
going to the movies every day, finally catch up on a number of movies. There are a, a number of very cool... Anyway, this is not the movie segment yet. I'll talk about that later, but everything is closed. And, well, that is a shame. Even the churches have to close more or less. We are only allowed to have masses with a maximum of 50 people. For Christmas time, that is nothing. That is really nothing. So, of course, everybody is like, oh, wait a minute, that streaming thing that we used to do. Um, let's put the cameras back in place. So I'm working here with the local community to uh, put some cameras in the church. And I really had to kind of uh, think deep, of how, how did we do that? Because it's been more than half a year since we mounted the bigger cameras. You know, here, of course, I just use my another Canon M50 to stream mass, and it's just one camera, and super simple. I just zoom in on the image. But in the church, we're going to use PTZ cameras or PTZ cameras, which are, which are these swivel cameras, and they can zoom in, and they're very fancy, but also a bit tricky to install. So time is kind of running out. I'm getting a bit nervous. Am I going to be able to get that up and running? Because uh, not only don't I have one vital like black magic box that that converts the signals from the cameras to the stream, um, but also the computer that we used to use for these streams, um, iMac. I don't I don't have it anymore. It moved to my mom who had an even older iMac. And so uh, now I have to configure a PC using OBS probably to get that up and running, but I don't have that much experience with a PC system, especially if you have two already pretty advanced cameras. Uh, It's going to be tricky. But on the other hand, I think we have to do our best to make the most out of this time, even though it is... uh, Everybody is worried and and, and, um, maybe... Uh, here in the Netherlands, we're very early with that strict lockdown, but I'm pretty sure that many countries will follow, will have to follow, in order to kind of lower the infection speed um, and, and and see if we can flatten the curve a little bit. But we, I, what I at least want to do is, is take advantage of this time off that I have to make sure I can still reach people and that we can form community. Another idea that I had, and I've already talked about that at the end of Mass uh, last Sunday and in my episode, my latest episode of The Walk. So I was thinking of doing um, a bit of a, <laughs> how appropriate, a housewarming party. And it's not just heating up the, the house in which I live, but it's also to get together around Christmas Eve and especially to join all of you that may also be in a lockdown or maybe living alone, don't have people to share Christmas with. I'm thinking, well, we're all in the same boat. So why not do something with that and and come together? Just as I'm now joining you through digital means, we can also do that on Christmas Eve. So what I what I'm hoping to do uh, but again, the practicalities, you know, how, how, what kind of equipment and how am I going to stream this? The idea would be to do a housewarming party. So it's my official event to welcome you into my house so I can show you around a little bit. And then to just spend some time together. Um, if you are a longtime listener, you may remember these um, fundraising marathons that we used to do. So at the end of the year... Uh, since we had no... Patreon didn't exist yet. So in order to, to do the podcasting work and to pay the bills, we had to do this, this yearly fundraiser. 
and one of the ways in which we <laughs> would incentivize people to to help us was to create this this marathon where for 12 hours so 12 hours straight we would we would stream and and chat and do all sorts of wacky things um and at the same time of course there would be this uh, this uh, fund drive to hopefully get enough funds to continue for another year so that was a lot of fun i'm thinking well it, of course, the, the situation is different, but I loved the community aspect of it. And why not combine, you know, housewarming and Christmas and and and, and the Corona pandemic uh, in, into this occasion to um, to do something fun together? So, of course, being alone and not being able to invite people over to join me, other than virtual, I was thinking, well, there are a few things that that we could do. Of course, mass. Um, so I can celebrate Christmas Eve Mass here in the small uh, um, chapel that I built for the occasion. Um, I don't think it will be practical to use the church for that because I would also in, I would have to involve other people to help me with that. Whereas our government is like, please stay home, don't get together. Uh, plus, it is we're just a few days before Christmas, so it would uh, require an enormous amount of, of effort. And I'm not even sure that it would uh, would would add much to it. Maybe just the simplicity of this chapel that, that we built is, is enough. And, and then what I would like to do is to start a bit earlier with maybe some Christmas preparations. I still I have a, a Christmas tree downstairs, but it only has lights. I bought some uh, some uh, Christmas what is it decorations, but I haven't put them in the tree. Maybe that's something we can do together. <laughs> I don't know. Just like get the house Christmas proof, and then I was thinking um, I can show you my kitchen, but it's much more fun to actually cook, uh, maybe for an hour or so, and and prepare a Christmas meal. Um, and then <clears throat> another thing that we could do, in addition to mass, of course is maybe build um, a Christmas Lego set. Just have an hour for the for the Lego fans. And then maybe we can just hang out and chat, have a cup of hot chocolate, wherever you are, and drink to the newborn child. And uh, end it maybe with a, um, uh, a fireplace chat or something like that about movies or anything. Um, if, if you would be interested in that let me know on social media let me know in the comments as well um so that i kind of know if this is something that you know would would uh, would be useful otherwise of course if nobody <laughs> cares i'm going to save myself a lot of trouble when i don't have to do all that but maybe maybe we can we can help one another and uh and and create you know a nice communal moment we have to make the most out of the situation I do not like movies. They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl, and that kid sees dead people, and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. So, as I mentioned in my introduction, the movie theaters have closed, and on the verge of closing, when, when, when the news broke that probably our government would announce a strict lockdown, which would also mean a shutdown of the cultural sector, so museum and you know, entertainment, <clears throat> I 
was able to see one last movie before the lockdown. And no, it wasn't Spider-Man, because those screenings were all sold out. I've never seen something like that. I think it was a premise of uh, what's to come with that movie, because everywhere in the world, it's a massive success. So the movie theaters, because they have to close at five, and this was already the case before the strict lockdown, uh, they had moved their opening hours, their screening hours, to very early in the morning. So the first movie was at 7.30 in the morning. And uh, when I was going to the, um, uh, the, the movie theater website, I noticed that all the screenings, and there were like, like eight screenings that day for Spider-Man, they were all sold out. They were filled to the brim. And so I, I couldn't go and see it. I missed it. And then the day after, you know, it's, it's going to be closed until I think the, 14, the 14th of January. And then, of course, it's not certain that, that theaters will reopen. Um, so I was really sad that I got, didn't get to see it because from the looks of it, it is a fantastic movie. However, I did get to see another movie which I wanted to see for a long time but hadn't been able to because of this burglar. You remember two weeks ago, I was on, on really preparing. I was, I was putting my coat on to go to the movies when I heard that someone was trying to break into my house. And uh, the police had to come over. And it just messed everything up. And so I never got to see the movie that I was planning to see on that day, which was Ghostbusters Afterlife. Now, oh, Ghostbusters is such a cool franchise and uh, definitely part of my all-time favorite movies. There are a number of them. You know, we've got Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. Um, uh, we, you got Back to the Future, a very important one. And, and for me, Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, that's kind of the same vibe. Uh, it, it, it all hit the movie theaters when I was still in seminary, in the early years of seminary. And um, I, I have such fond memories, not only of those movies, but also... I associated with a very happy time in my life. And so when I heard that they were going to do another sequel to the, to the Ghostbusters movies, and that in this case, it wouldn't be this kind of like reboot, what they did with the female team of Ghostbusters, which, well, you know, my opinion about that movie, I, I didn't think it was a, a success. Um, and I was probably not the only one because they decided to do a proper sequel to the first two Ghostbusters movie movies, and uh, and it's it clearly when you see the movie, it it takes place in the same universe. It is an homage also to what made these first two movies great, even though they were very flawed movies. Um, because nobody expected them to become this big franchise, uh, but. In, in a way, this movie makes the first two movies even more important and even, even bigger. And I think sets, sets maybe uh, the, or, or inaugurates the beginning of, of a whole new uh, series of, of movies. They can definitely move forward, I think. Um, and so uh, there was a lot to love. I, I thought everybody was great in the movie. All the actors were great. I loved the ton of references and easter eggs and special appearances of people from the old movies and it, it was done in a very tasteful way sometimes it was a little bit on the cheesy side um there was also a lot of repetition visual repetition of stuff that we'd already seen in these first two movies but on the other hand it's it's a little bit like what they did with the force awakens you have to kind of bring back those 
glory times in order to build upon that. So maybe and if there's going to be another Ghostbusters movie, and why not? This this one did very well. Uh, they can probably step away a little bit from the same repetition of, of, of elements um, that we saw in, uh, in, in Ghostbusters Afterlife. I also thought that there was... Um, they're, they're, the actress who plays Phoebe, which is the younger uh, sister of the other guy who is, um, you know, the actor from, um, from uh, Stranger Things, uh, Phoebe is definitely the heart of the movie. It's a nerdy kid who is very much into science, doesn't believe in ghosts, but then has no fear. Be- maybe because she's so nerdy and so much, you know, matter of fact, um, the moment she discovers that, well, ghosts are a, a reality to deal with, she has no fear. And, 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 and it's such, it's so well played. And she's such a strong character and funny as well. That I think this is how you do a, uh, this is how you give the, the Ghostbusters a believable female uh, character. It's not by going like, oh, well, and let's just copy what we did with the original team of Ghostbusters and then pick women who kind of step into the same roles and do almost like a pastiche of, of the original Ghostbusters with, I think, you know, not so funny jokes. That felt so forced and so contrived. Whereas in this movie, you're like, wow, the main character the hero of the story is this girl, is Phoebe. And she is is, uh, believable and convincing and has charism, not because she is female, but because of her her nerdiness, her her fearlessness, and, and the qualities of her personality. And so it makes for a much, much more natural um, uh, story. And also, this, this is how you create uh, female heroes. You know, this is something that, that we've seen, of course, in a lot of movies over the past few years, that more and more uh, a company like Disney um, kind of steers away from the traditional you know, male prince on a white horse who is going to save the day and, and moves it to female heroes or heroines. But it's... Sometimes, not always. Sometimes a bit contrived and a bit like over the top. Like oh gosh, <laughs> like the talk talks about oh we need a female James Bond now, and and maybe in a few years we're gonna have a, a talks about a female uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, like a female Indiana Jones, etc. etc. And like that's not helping. <laughs> I think it's actually counterproductive. Look at what Ghostbusters Afterlife did and and go that route. That is how you tell good stories because it's all about stories, all about characters. It's all about certain values that that someone portrays. In this in this case, I would say courage, fearlessness. That is something that we need. That is that is what the what our society needs. And if that is portrayed by a female character or by a male character, it doesn't matter. It's it's the, the story has to be believable. So anyway, that that is um, in a nutshell of why I love this movie so much. Um, the music I I got to men- mention the music as well, which at times made me really think of the early John Williams, and it's mostly because of the instrumentation he's using a lot of uh, the hobo and um, some flutes and stuff. He, he 
it, it, it evokes just the soundtrack of A New Hope. And then at other times, it was absolutely Sylvester for Back to the Future. It was that same rhythm, like... The things that make the Back to the Future movies so much bigger than they actually were, because let's not forget, Back to the Future, that was a low-budget, was considered to be a low-budget production. And the music, I think, is very instrumental in, in making it feel like a huge blockbuster. And in this movie, the music at times did exactly the same, because the story itself, it, it stays small, it dares to stay small. That's another thing that I loved about the movie. Whereas the female Ghostbusters went all out and it was just this extravaganza of, of special effects. And it was so over the top. And, and a lot of the special effects didn't contribute to the story. I, I wish they had you know, invested more in the story writing and in the script than in the special effects. This movie is the opposite. The story is, is small. And, uh, but the greatness is evoked more than just let's, let's pour some more millions into the special effects. Not to say that the special effects are bad, on the contrary. Uh, I see a lot of practical effects in this movie, which I really loved. And of course, seeing the Ecto-1, the, the car back in action. Oh, and then the ending. There are two post credit scenes. Ah, man. I was getting all emotional. I was like, oh, gosh, yes, give us more, please. Bring me back to those glory times. This movie felt like... A blockbuster Spielberg type of production from the from the eighties. That's how it felt, and I. That's rare. Uh, it's it's it's. You know, we are very good nowadays at telling good stories. Uh, the cinematography, everything, the the special effects, uh, audio mixing, everything has pro has made so much progress progress over the last couple of years. But that feel, that blockbuster feel, that that. Ghostbusters Afterlife evokes that is something that made me all nostalgic and at the same time I, th I think it totally works for a younger and new audience as well proof all the people that I was watching the movie with loved it and there were many people in the in the theater that were a lot younger like a generation or two younger than I was and they laughed just like I laughed I don't think they got a lot of the references um, because well it's the Easter eggs are there for the for the older fans, I think. But the movie worked just as well for them as it did for me as someone who immediately recognizes the style of, of the 80s blockbusters. So, unfortunately, uh, for the time being, no reviews of, of Spider-Man No Way Home or The Matrix Resurrections, because all those movies will have to wait until the end of our lockdown in the Netherlands. Uh, and I don't think we're going to see them um, on streaming platforms anytime soon. Uh, then I watched a little bit of TV. I'm still kind of gearing up for more TV uh, as soon as things quiet down. This, these are the last few days before Christmas. It's always a bit busier than normal because you're wrapping up stuff. There is a lot of administration that has to be done. I've got the Christmas preparations. So, But once Christmas is over, I'm going to take a week to just you know watch some tv read some books play some video games build some lego i'm not going to be bored at all um but i so i'm hoping to watch the final episode episodes of uh the wheel of time uh i think they're wrapping up the first season already this friday and it, it convinces me that you know eight episodes is not enough for a season come on we gotta have at least 10 or 12 but eight 
That is just greedy. We need more. Then you've got The Witcher, the second season. I'm looking forward to to seeing that. Hopefully it's going to be a bit less confusing than the first season, which time-wise went all over the place, and it was like very dis- disorienting uh, at first. Uh, but I like that. I like that universe. Um, so uh, I'm going to watch that. And then, of course, Boba Fett. Right after, you know, towards the end of the year after Christmas, we're going to see the first episode of the new Boba Fett series. So we're going to go back to Tatooine. What I've seen from the trailer is, um, looks good. Um, Look, it had a bit of a mafia vibe to me, almost as if this was some kind of god, like Boba Fett became a kind of godfather. I don't know what the style will be. Um... I'm not as as pumped about it as I was for uh, for the Mandalorian for the second season, but maybe it'll surprise me. Maybe it will be much better than everyone thinks. So, uh, and I I really want to know what happened between the Mandalorian and the end of Return of the Jedi, or at least the end of Boba Fett in Return of the Jedi. Maybe we'll get some glimpses on how he got out of that Sarlacc pit, because we need to know that. Um, I watched uh, a a few more episodes of the second season of Mythic Quest on Apple TV, or Apple TV+, Plus, which is a really great series. I love that series. It's funny. It's quirky. Um... I love the flashback episodes. They do really wacky things with that series. So sometimes they will just completely take you out of that. So the story is about this gaming company and everything that happens on the work floor. But every once in a while, they'll go back in time and tell you the the background story of one of the characters. And the last one that I saw was brilliant. It, it's this character, CW, um, who is kind of the script writer for this online game. And he always... Um, showed off his Nebula Award, which is a real existing award for science fiction writers. And you don't get a Nebula Award uh, because you're a bad writer. You have to be really the top, the top of the, top of the crop, is that how you say it? So for, for more than a season, that has always been a bit of a mystery because he's not that good. <laughs> he's he's really weird and and confused and doesn't have the best story ideas. So you're like, how can this be an acclaimed science fiction writer? Well, this one episode that that shows you how he started his career as a science fiction writer explains it, and it is hilarious. And um, you get uh, a bit of a a glimpse into the science fiction, um, well, the world of science fiction writing from the seventies. And, and they portray, like, three great, very well-known science fiction writers, uh, Ursula Le Guin and uh, two others, which kind of escape me right now. Uh, but it, it was great to see. You, I didn't expect this, this uh, nod to reality in, in a fictional story. Uh, they did it really well. Plus, in that episode, they mention a book that he has written, a story that he has written, and that actually got him the Nebula Award. Now, to my great surprise, I was Googling uh, uh, this episode. They actually published that story, which is fictional. It's never been, I mean, it's not from the 70s, but you can read it and it's downloadable for free on, I think on Apple, on the, uh, the Apple Bookstore. And there is also an audiobook version of it in probably in iTunes. Uh, I don't know. Or maybe it's linked to the to the book. I don't use Apple for, for books. 
So I'll have to go and, 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 and look that up. But how cool is that? That they're talking about a fictional book in a fictional TV series and they actually have the book. Uh, and, and I don't think they, uh, they told many people. So to me, that's like, oh my gosh, now I got to check that out. <laughs> that is such a cool idea. So anyway, um, if you want to see why CW got his Nebula Award, uh, I, I may include a link in the show notes for you to read. All right, and with that, it is time for a visit to the Peculiar Bunch. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics, but you were afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. Oh, meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? All right, well, we need to talk about Christmas, of course, and what do we do with Christmas in times of corona? Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. So, Christmas time is, of course, a time that everybody has feelings for, right? I don't know anyone who says, oh, I hate Christmas, or, yeah... I don't, it's just a day like any other. Actually, I do know someone who, who was like that. It was my father. I'm not kidding you. My father really disliked, uh, you know, any type of feast. So he would always complain that Christmas is just hype and it's, you know, uh, it's overrated. And, uh, well, people don't come to church during the year. And now all of a sudden they all feel all cozy and religious for Christmas. Pfft, let's just abolish this. And, 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 you know, for Christians, Christmas is really not that important. He, he used to say, it's, it's, isn't it supposed to be about Holy Week and Easter? That should be the center of attention. And all these Christians are just celebrating Christmas. But Christmas is just a beginning. It has really no importance. And he hated the just all the traditions around Christmas. And it's probably, I don't know, well, he may have had his own issues when he was young with Christmas and the way it was celebrated in his family. But Christmas for me, was as a child, was also not my favorite time of the year because my mom was very involved in the parish and she would always be busy with Christmas. Uh, with the children's choir, and then we do a musical, and then uh, after that, that already took up weeks and weeks of preparation, and then there was they always wanted to go to mass a second time, so for you know the Christmas Eve mass at late at night, so it just there was no end to it, and um, and then all the rest at home, the actual celebration, the actual feast of Christmas, that all was rushed, and it was all always. I, I associate it with stress, stressful memories. So I kind of agreed with my father that like, Christmas is overrated. And then once I became a priest, Christmas was also all about stress and work. It's not, it's not, it's not good, you know? For priests, Christmas is one of the most stressful times. And it, it starts sometimes weeks in advance where all these different celebrations have to be prepared and choirs have to be guided and everybody wants to create their own like liturgy in a, in the sense that they always want to have like their own liturgy booklet um and then well of course a lot of people that are um involved in in liturgy today have been kind of grew up in the 70s where it was all about liturgical creativity so uh, very often 
especially for these feast days, you need to be extremely, you know, careful and always con- uh, look at what they present you with. And uh, <laughs> just a few weeks ago, I was in one of those locations here and then a choir was singing and then the director of the choir came to me and she said, uh, yeah, so for Christmas, you're going to be in our uh, parish church and um, can we sing the creed? And I was like, yeah, sure, by all means. I mean, it's Christmas. Why not? And she said, oh, I'm very surprised. It's like, why? Well, because the words are not the official ones. And I was like, oh, here we go again. I was just thinking you sing whatever, you know, <laughs> just a regular creed. Why does it have to be different words? Oh, gosh. Well, anyway, so for, for a lot of priests, and then, of course, um, most priests live alone. Uh, we, we are uh, celibate priests. So you don't have a family, which in a certain way is, is maybe very good because Christmas is so busy that uh, a family would suffer. And I know this from Protestant colleagues who are working as pastors in a Protestant church. If they have a family, tough times, you know? They don't get to see their dad or mom. <laughs> <laughs> during Christmas time. Plus, you always have around this time also more people that get sick and are lonely. And so there's also a lot of pastoral work that, that intensifies around uh, the Christmas days. So all that, of course, is is um, not conducive to for priests, at least, to have a quiet, peaceful Christmas. Um, and in a way, I'm kind of glad that this year is different um, for me personally, because I don't have a particular assignment for a parish. Of course, I, I was going to celebrate uh, Mass and still am on, on Christmas morning. But since the evening, Christmas Eve Mass was cancelled, well, I was like, okay, I'm just going to celebrate it here in my own studio with the, uh, the online community. And I like that because it's simple, it's, you know... It's cozy. It's not too. Uh, I, it 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 doesn't have much stress connected to it. Now, maybe of course, when when the internet connection breaks and software starts to crash, and <laughs> there may be some stress in store. But um, but I like it when, even though Christmas is an important feast, I, I think simplicity uh, also in liturgy is is worth it. Um, I remember having a fight a couple of years ago with uh, one of the choirs um, of a certain location because they wanted to shine during Christmas. You know, they had uh, rehearsed for weeks and they wanted to do this big concert mass where they would sing all new material. And they were so proud. So they come to me with all that new material and I'm like, I don't think this is a good idea. What do you mean it's not a good idea? I was like, well, you know, why don't you just sing Christmas songs? No, 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 that's too plain that everybody does that. No, we want to introduce new material. We're going to sing. And I was looking at these songs and, and, and like, oh, please. I am already like, <laughs> I don't want to have that because for me, Christmas is... The part of what makes Christmas so special is is that it connects you with generations before you. You all celebrate the same feast, and so for me, traditional songs uh, are a reflection of that of that connection with previous generations. Why would you do everything new when what we have is so beautiful? 
there is something about these traditional songs that if it ain't broke, don't throw it away. Don't replace it with something that you think is better but because nobody will enjoy it. Uh, people want to sing and want to hear these old songs. Um, so, But in the end, of course, I lost a battle. These choirs are very powerful. So I was sitting there during Mass and I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is don't. Please bring back the Christmas songs. And the year after that... I, I was ahead of the game, and so I, I just basically wrote all these choirs. Like, um, what I want <laughs> in my masses is traditional Christmas songs. Let's give the people what they long for. Now, there is a risk to that. And that is if, if you lean too much, too much into the comfort, you know, just traditions. We're celebrating Christmas because we... It's all about feelings, you know, it's about warmth. W Christmas can also lose the edge it has. We, we forget that often, but Christmas is not just about comfort. It's also about challenge. Christmas in itself is a shocking story of a young couple that is to give birth to a child in the middle of nowhere, and nobody wants to receive them, nobody wants to help them. Christ is born in the midst of darkness and rejection. That will be the story, literally, of his life. Rejection. He is here to bring light and love, and people prefer the darkness and the cold. And that's what ultimately kills, will kill this child, well, when he's older. So it's this ongoing battle between the light and the dark, which is symbolized so much in all our traditions. But we tend to, and I do, I'm also guilty of that we tend to overemphasize the comfortable cozy side of christmas and we kind of push away the challenge side of it this is a feast that is supposed to also awaken me and and tell me that i too am called to be like this child in the manger to give my life as food for for the people in need and to bring light in the darkness and to even be willing to be rejected even though, you know, I'm one of the, I, I belong to the light side. But the, 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 the power of darkness is something that we all encounter in our lives, in our world. Right now, in this time of corona, there is so much darkness. There's so much hatred, so much intolerance. People are, are, are afraid, afraid of one another. They are angry, um, resentful, resentful. Uh, this is this is all the opposite of, of, of the message of Christmas. And so if you want to bring the story of Christmas into this world, it will actually collide with the current mentality. That is the gritty side of Christmas. And so how do you combine these two? I find that very difficult. Um, because I too long for this cozy, comfortable side of Christmas because it's so dark right now. And you kind of want to warm yourself with predictable traditions, with songs that you know. And maybe the best way to find this, to encounter, to, to embrace also, I would say, the challenging side of Christmas is to bring Christmas to those that live in darkness, just as 
the Christmas message, the angels bring the story of and the announcement of the birth of the Messiah to people that live in darkness. They've seen a great light. That's the message. And so um, maybe the way to combine both the comfort and the challenge of Christmas is to look around and see if you see initiatives in your own neighborhood among, you know, maybe your colleagues or friends or family they are doing something for people that won't have a nice, comfortable Christmas. Um, you know, the people that live in the streets. That's a reality. They are everywhere. Um, the people that are in hospitals, the people that cannot go and celebrate Christmas with their loved ones because they are... They have to stay awake all night long to be there with the patients because otherwise people will die. Um, maybe there are things that we can do to encourage them, to bring them a little bit of warmth, uh, to, to bring them some food. I remember that last year I was doing um, an episode of my TV show about uh, the Sant'Egidio community in, um, in Apeldoorn, which is a city not far from here where uh, during the Christmas time, the weeks before and after Christmas, they would bring warm food and chocolate milk to people that live in the streets, uh, the, the drug addicts, etc. They would literally have a, a cart filled with food and, and hot drinks, and they would go and find these persons outside. And, and then not just give them food and some hot chocolate, but to have a conversation, show friendship, and what impressed me so much was that they always spoke about these people in difficult situations or drug addicts or whatever as friends. They, these are our friends. They are equal to us. They're less fortunate than we are, but they are our brothers and sisters. They are our friends. And so just as much as we invite our close family or we would like to invite our close family and friends for Christmas, even though because of Corona we probably won't or shouldn't um why do we select just the people that make us feel comfortable maybe christmas can can and you know how to do that specifically while i'm sharing this with you i'm thinking what can i do because i live in a small town here there's not much poverty in this town at least not visible poverty i don't think that there are many people sleeping outside in because it's it's a small town um, so it's something that you may find in the bigger cities, but I'm pretty sure that there are lots of people that are currently in distress. Think of all the people that have to have to close their stores for weeks that won't get compensated for it. I know that, uh, for instance, the restaurants here they had hoped for a really good Christmas, so their their um, pantries are full of food, and the government has already said, "Well, we're not going to compensate you for that." So they are operating at a, at a huge loss. And for many of them, this year had already been terrible. So maybe there is something I can do to just show them a little bit of warmth, show them that, you know, they're not alone in this. Um, my challenge to you would be make that part of your Christmas preparations. And, and, and you don't have to be heroic in this. You don't have to do big things. But, but think small. What is, can I make one person happy for this Christmas? that otherwise would probably be alone or, you know, for, for who would spend this, this Christmas time in darkness. Can you, can you find one person or two that you can uh, help 
and, and, and bring some of that comfort that you would wish for yourself to that other person. Well, that's my challenge. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> when did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? I did a lot of reading. <laughs> I'm still five books behind on my Goodreads schedule. But I'm going to be okay. Because it means that I have to read about, I think, six more books. Six or seven more books. And I still have a week. I've been reading about one book a week, only the last, or one book a day, actually. Only the last few days I've gotten behind. But So I'm reading a number of books simultaneously, and I hope to finish them all so I can uh, have a nice conclusion to my Goodreads reading challenge. So I just want to mention a couple of books that I'm currently reading, uh, some of which are almost done. Uh, the first one is a, a book that I wanted to read for a long time uh, because I've seen it uh, multiple times in the daily deals on the Amazon Kindle store. Uh, and it is called Horror Store. Horror Store, basically Horror Store. And the cover of the book looks like a catalog of Ikea. And that's on purpose. And the entire... Uh, book. This is, of course, the ebook. I'm listening to the audiobook version of it, so you kind of miss that aspect of it. But the layout of the book, the, the, the paper book or the ebook, is done like as if you are browsing through an IKEA catalog. But the story is very different. It is actually a horror story. And it, it tells the story about a number of people that work in a very IKEA like warehouse. Now, I, in that world, in that fictional world, IKEA also exists. So they mentioned IKEA just to say, well, hey, this is not, sounds like IKEA, feels like IKEA, but it's not IKEA because look, IKEA also exists for real, but that's not where this story takes place. That's probably <laughs> out of legal precaution. But you got, you, you're introduced to a number of people that live in that warehouse and, um, and this is all happening in the beginning of the book. Uh, there are some weird things happening. Uh, th th there is a stench in certain areas of the warehouse at times. They find that uh, there are excrements. Uh, yeah, it gets a little bit uh, nasty in, in, uh, on some of the furniture. And then, of course, at first, this is all like, oh, God, you won't believe what customers do. And, you, you know, we've seen it all. But then it gets worse over time. And then the, a small group of people that work at IKEA they are afraid that there will be an inspection of, you know, the upper levels of the of the company and that maybe uh, people will get fired over that. And so instead of uh, waiting for that, you know, for, for corporate to intervene, they decide to stay the night over and to see if they can catch the person who is uh, defiling their store. And then, well, if this is a horror story, things are going to go awry. And, but it, what I expected, I, I thought this was going to be, you know, Shaun of the Dead. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but it's, it's brilliant. <laughs> and it's, it's like this zombie apocalypse that happens in, in the middle of the UK with, you know, very regular people that have to face this hilarious movie. And so I expected something with zombies and just over-the-top horror elements. But that's not the way this story is told. It's actually much more subtle and, and it's really well done. So for, for chapter after chapter, you feel like, oh my God, oh, I don't, oh gosh, no, don't go there. No, 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 don't, don't open that door. And then, oh, oh, it was just, there was a rational explanation. So for the first 
part of the book. You're constantly, you think that something bad is going to happen and then, oh no, it's just something else. And then of course, when it does happen, you're like, oh no, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. It's really, it, it keeps me on the edge of my seat. It's so well written and I love the concept because the descriptions, even though they officially say this is not Ikea, everything takes place and and. If you've seen one IKEA, you know them all. Like an IKEA here in, in, in Duiven, where I go now, or in Amersfoort, is very much the same like the IKEA in, I don't know, the, the uh, outskirts of New York or near Los Angeles or wherever you live. Um, and because they're all built, these warehouses, uh, uh, along the same lines, the same philosophy, and a lot of that philosophy is also integrated in the story. So the person who wrote this is has really studied... Um, the, the whole corporate concept of Ikea. But that also really helps you to visualize the story. And, and it, I don't know, it just feels like I'm listening to this audiobook and it feels like I am at Ikea. And because it's such a familiar environment, it gets even creepier. Because you, you have this very clear mental image. Like, in my mind, I am literally in the Ikea of Amersfoort when I'm reading this book. And because every Ikea is the same... But like even the, the 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 way they walk, the the layout of the of the upper floor where a lot of the bad stuff happens is identical to what the places where I've been. So it's almost as if the story is about my local IKEA. And oh my gosh, it is brilliant. Um, it, I haven't finished it yet, so I hope the ending is going to live up to my expectations. But Horror Stir is definitely one of the most original books I've read this year. Then, I've already talked in my episode of The Walk uh, that came out uh, earlier today about uh, a book that's called Eat That Frog. 21 Great Ways to Stop Procrastinating and Get More Done in Less Time. Now, the title is horrible. It, it, it sounds like just any other mediocre self-help book. But actually, there were some insights in this book that have really helped me so much. And if you want to know how, listen to the episode of The Walk. But eat that frog. Remember that. It's important to eat a big frog early in the morning. I will say no more. Um, it's a short book, but um, really good. I'm happy to have discovered it. Then I'm reading a, a longer book, Station Eleven. This is about... Um, uh, it's a story about a virus that is killing half of the population. But it's also about how... Um, people react to that situation. Now, this book was written probably before COVID, but a lot of it is eerily similar to what we're going through. And so it makes it makes it for an interesting read. Um, it's not a very optimistic read. <laughs> you, know, you know, a lot of the ugliness that we see in real life is also part of this story. So, hmm, I'm not sure it's, if it's going to help my faith in, in mankind's goodness, but it's an, an interesting read. It's, it's well written. Then a short story, which is fantastic, is Spock versus Q. And this book is actually read, again, listening to the audiobook, it is read live in front of a live audience during a Star Trek convention by none other than Leonard Nimoy and John Delancey. So they are reading the story on stage in front of an audience, and it's Spock and Q. These two actors, I never knew that they had done something like this together. And of course, Spock is from the original, you know, Star Trek, whereas Q is mostly associated with The Next Generation and, and Voyager and some other series. But 
to have these two great actors on stage together telling a story um wow oh it's just pure joy and i'm you know as a star trek fan it warms my heart because i'm still so much in distress over not being able to see star trek discovery uh, because they pulled it from netflix so boy oh boy oh boy these audiobooks really helped me get my star trek fix and then i la- read one last book which is about it's a dutch book uh about our tendency to measure everything which kind of was interesting because I'm like, yeah, I do that all the time. I measure everything. I count my calories. I measure, you know, I've got my habitica. So I, I, I click on all the habits that I've established, etc. I score points with that. But this book also explores the darker side of this tendency to measure everything and to use big data to make decisions based on unclear and unscientific pr- premises. So if you, ha- if you gather a lot of data, you can actually pretend that you're working with facts But data itself has to be interpreted. And that interpretation is what we often forget, can be very thwarted, can be um, not objective at all. And the book gives a lot of examples. It just came out in the Netherlands. And I even got like a retweet from, or a like from the the Twitter account of the author, I think. Um, uh, It it really opened my eyes. It's like, well, this is definitely something that we, again, need to learn. We need to learn how to be more critical to all these different uh, corporate organizations that use this data and present it to us as if it's, you know, gospel truth. But always remain critical and ask, uh, what are the premises? What are the questions that you've asked? What is this research based on? How scientific is it? Do we really get to see a representative set of, of data? Or is it just like cherry picking the stuff that suits what you want to accomplish i think we really need to learn to be more critical and without becoming overly critical like you see sometimes in the conspiracy theory circles where you know everything is uh, is all uh, is is doubted um but i would say again here uh, we, we need to approach everything with an analytic skeptical scientific approach um but don't believe anything just because they say well the numbers show that it's like okay how did you get those numbers what are your what's your philosophy uh according to what to which you you are interpreting these numbers stay critical don't stop using your brain Welcome back, science friends. Oh, we are going to have an amazing Christmas. Why? Because I think the 24th of December, at least for now, uh, they have scheduled the launch of a new space telescope. Now, we all know about the Hubble Space Telescope, which was launched in, when I was still a kid or in high school. And then, of course, it had this faulty mirror that had to be replaced. They used the, the space shuttle for that, which was really cool. Back, back then, I, I was imagining that the space shuttle would, would, would be there forever. And then astronauts would just go and fix satellites and you know, build big space stations. Unfortunately, none of that happened because it's much cheaper to just send another satellite if one gets broken is broken. But the Hubble telescope, once it worked, they corrected the flaw in the mirror, um, it, it showed us things that no one had ever seen. And of course, you're out of the atmosphere, so you get a much clearer picture than if you try to use big telescopes here on Earth. Now, this new telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, is not a replacement of the Hubble telescope, but it's going to work alongside the Hubble telescope. 
but is much more advanced, of course. <laughs> there are decades of progress that is uh, integrated in the technology of this James Webb Space Telescope. It has... Um, uh, oh, it, actually, this is the first space telescope that has an actual launch trailer. So it's got like, you have trailers for movies? This space telescope has a trailer on YouTube. It's, it's worth watching. It's just pretty cool. Now, what it does is it also will, not only will it, it has a, I think, a bigger mirror than the Hubble telescope, so it will be able to be, it's more sensitive, but it also has infrared uh, abilities. And that is important because it will enable us to see things that are very remote. Now, according to scientists, of course, the, the universe keeps on expanding. You know, you've got this big, big Bang theory. And since then, matter is being projected outwards. And so the further objects are away from us, star systems and whatnot, uh, the more the specter of the light shifts to the red and the infrared. And so what this infrared ability of the space telescope will be able enable us to do is to see stuff that is so remote that it, it starts to approach the childhood years of the universe. Every time you look into space, you look back in time. Um, because time it takes time for the light to reach us. Millions, billions of years. And so the further we can see the more we will actually see something of these early origins of this universe. Of course, is that the beginning? Is the Big Bang the beginning of everything? Was there something before the Big Bang? Is it all cyclical? I'll leave those philosophical questions for, you know, another time. But, uh, but it's fascinating that this telescope will actually look back in time and show us the past in a, in, in a, in a way that we've never seen before i can't i and of course oh, it's going to be so exciting and at the same time nerve-wracking because you have to fit this huge telescope into a tiny little package it's all folded up and and so it needs to unfold and that of course has all sorts of i think there are 300 i heard that on the verge the verge podcast and they said there are 300 moments of possible failure in the process of unfolding that telescope so 300 times that it can go wrong Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting Christmas for uh, Space Telescope fans. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, which is... And it's a disaster. But there is one more thing. It's appropriate that we hear the voice of Steve Jobs here, uh, the late uh, founder of Apple, uh, in this jingle, because I wanted to briefly touch upon what's next for Apple in 2021. And from the looks of it, from the rumors, this is finally going to be the year that I've been waiting for personally for many years. And that is the next generation device for Apple. That is, I think, potentially... <laughs> can potentially revolutionize everything. And, and that's not her, her hyperbole. I think that Apple also believes it. This is a, a device that may actually free us from, you know, this addiction to our cell phone that we constantly have to stare at, and look at, you know, we hold it in our hands. It's not something I want to do for the rest of my life. If that information comes to me on this tiny little screen, that is heavy, 
always falling from my pockets that I have to replace every two years. Why not just project it straight into my eye, that information? That is what Apple is planning on doing with their AR glasses. So it's going to be a a system that will allow Apple to project things on top of the reality that we see. So it's uh, they add to the reality. And of course, this has been done before. This is not virtual reality where everything is closed, like what, you know, Facebook is doing with the Quest. Um, you'll be able to just walk around with a pair of glasses, but there will be lots of information added to it. HoloLens, uh, Microsoft's uh, effort, has shown us a little glimpse of what that could do. But of course, as usual, it didn't have the polish that Apple may be able to bring to this whole genre of devices. They really took their time to develop this. This was slated to be introduced in 2020, if I have to believe the rumors, but because of COVID, but also because of, you know, the perfection that Apple strives to accomplish was postponed to 2022. But you bet that Apple is putting all its cards on this being the new device that everybody will want to have. And because they took so much time to develop it, they will probably already have plans for years to come on how to improve this. Apparently the first batch is going to be super expensive just before you know the early adopters like a lot of stuff that apple does but over time of course when you get mass production it will get cheaper and cheaper plus it will give developers time to start thinking about how to uh make this useful and i i cannot wait to see what apple comes up with this may be the most exciting year for apple fans in 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 a decade um, and, and oftentimes Apple can be frustratingly re, uh, reiterative where every time it's like, yeah, it's an iPhone 13, 14, 15, and it's got a better lens. And then they give it all sorts of fancy names just to hide the fact that it's just a minor improvement. Um, but this is a totally new direction for the company. Um, it, I think it could very well be the biggest uh, technological innovation of the year to come. So here's hoping that nothing will be postponed. And even though it may not be in reach for me or for many other people, just seeing what the future is already makes my heart leap with joy. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I have to uh, wrap this up because my running party is waiting for me in about 10 minutes. I am going to spend two hours outside in the freezing cold training with uh, a trainer and uh, a bunch of other fellow runners. Ah, preemptive strike when it comes to Christmas calories. That's how I call it. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful preparation for Christmas. Talk to you soon.